House and Senate will both return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Both houses are scheduled to be in recess the following week, returning on Monday, January 28th. Programming note, President Trump will deliver the State of the Union address on Tuesday, January 29 at 9 p.m. Last week on the House floor, the House returned on Tuesday and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House passed another bill under suspension. Then the House took up the rules package for the 116th Congress, which passed by a vote of 235 to 192. Later Wednesday, the Democrats used their control of the House floor to begin a messaging strategy on the shutdown. They began voting on individual appropriations bills to fund parts of the government one at a time. First up was H.R. 264, the appropriations bill for financial services and general government. That passed on Wednesday afternoon. On Thursday, the House passed H.R. 267, the appropriations bill for the Department of Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, and related agencies. Then the House passed H.R. 265, the appropriations bill for agriculture, rural development, food and drug administration, and related agencies. On Friday, the House passed H.R. 266, the appropriations bill for the Department of Interior, Environment, and related agencies. For those keeping score at home, eight Republicans defected on the vote on the first appropriations bill, 12 Republicans defected on the second vote, 10 on the third vote, and 10 on the final vote. Then, under suspension of the rules, the House considered and passed two more bills, including S-24, the Government Employee Fair Treatment Act. That's a bill to guarantee that federal workers who are now missing paychecks will receive their back pay if and when the partial shutdown ends. And then they were done. This week on the House floor, the House will return on Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House will consider another 10 bills under suspension. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House may consider more appropriations-related legislation. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted on the motion to proceed to S-1, the Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act. That's a bill that was introduced by Senator Marco Rubio with three co-sponsors. It contains four sections, three of which are basically regurgitations of bills that that passed at least one of the two houses in the last Congress. The final section of the bill, the Combating BDS Act of 2019, that is, measures to oppose the boycott, divestment, and sanction effort to isolate Israel, has drawn opposition from Democrats who don't want to vote on it, apparently because it splits the Democratic Party. In addition, Senate Democrats think the Senate shouldn't vote on any bills until the government is reopened. Consequently, the motion to proceed was defeated by a vote of 56 to 44. It would have been defeated 57 to 43, but Majority Leader McConnell switched his vote from yay to nay at the end of the vote so he could move to reconsider the legislation. Following the vote, Majority Leader McConnell moved to reconsider the failed cloture vote on the motion to proceed to S-1 and then filed a new cloture motion on the motion to proceed to S-1. On Thursday, the Senate voted again on the motion to proceed to consideration of S-1. Cloture failed again, this time by a vote of 53 to 43. Again, Majority Leader McConnell followed the failed vote by filing a new cloture motion. Later Thursday afternoon, by unanimous consent, the Senate took up and passed S-24, the Government Employee Fair Treatment Act of 2019. This week on the Senate floor, they'll return on Monday at 3 p.m. The Senate will resume consideration of the motion to proceed to S-1. At 5.30 p.m., the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on that motion to proceed. To the Russia hoax, on Tuesday, the New York Times reported that former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort 
shared Trump campaign polling data with what the Times described as, quote, a business associate tied to Russian intelligence, unquote, and said a court filing unsealed on Tuesday, quote, provided the clearest evidence to date that the Trump campaign may have tried to coordinate with Russians during the 2016 presidential race, end quote. President Trump said two days after this story was reported that he was unaware that Manafort had shared the polling data. Three days later, on Friday evening, the New York Times published its latest blockbuster, revealing that in the days immediately following President Trump's firing of former FBI Director James Comey, senior officials at the FBI decided on their own to conduct a counterintelligence investigation of the president himself to determine whether or not he was a witting or unwitting agent of the Russian government. This investigation was separate from the FBI's initial counterintelligence investigation launched at the uh, launched in July of 2016 to determine if the Trump campaign was colluding with the Russian government to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. According to the Times piece, this second counterintelligence investigation was taken over by special counsel Robert Mueller when he was appointed. The Times says it does not know if the investigation is ongoing at this point. On Saturday, the Washington Post did its part to further this Manchurian candidate narrative, reporting that, quote, President Trump has gone to extraordinary lengths to conceal details of his conversations with Russian President Vladimir Putin, including on at least one occasion taking possession of the notes of his own interpreter and instructing the linguist not to discuss what had transpired with other administration officials, current and former U.S. officials said. Trump did so after a meeting with Putin in 2017 in Hamburg that was also attended by then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Former U.S. officials said that Trump's behavior is at odds with the known practices of previous presidents, who have relied on senior aides to witness meetings and take comprehensive notes then shared with other officials and departments, end quote. So does the fact that Paul Manafort shared polling data with an associate of his believed to be tied to Russian intelligence prove that the Trump campaign was cooperating with the Russian government? No, not at all. Manafort was known to be heavily in debt to a former Russian oligarch client of his. He likely was sharing the polling data for no purposes other than to show how close he was to then-candidate Trump in hopes he could buy himself some time and breathing room to pay back his multi-million dollar debt. And does the fact that senior FBI officials decided, their own, decided on their own to investigate the President of the United States to determine if he was a witting or unwitting agent of the Kremlin mean he must have been? Of course not. Interestingly, the Times report names no names. We have no idea who at the FBI ordered the launch of this counterintelligence investigation. All we know is that it was launched after the firing of James Comey on May 9, 2017, and before the appointment of Robert Mueller as special counsel eight days later on May 17, 2017. Presumably, the decision was made by former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe with assistance from former FBI General Counsel James Baker. As for shielding his conversations with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin, I honestly cannot say I blame the president. If you remember the early days of the Trump administration, it seemed every single conversation he had with a foreign leader leaked to the media. The calls that were leaked were cherry-picked to make him look bad, and they were clearly being leaked from somewhere inside the national security bureaucracy, where there were and still are many Obama administration holdovers and professional bureaucrats who think little of President Trump. To the shutdown, <clears throat> we're now on day 23 
of what yesterday became the longest government shutdown of the modern era, and no one has any idea how this is going to end. The shutdown began on Saturday, December 22nd, when the latest continuing resolution funding about 7.5% of the government expired. Since then, we've had a stalemate, as the president has insisted he will, find, he will sign no funding bills to reopen the shuttered portions of the government unless they contain $5.7 billion for wall funding. Congressional Democrats, led by newly installed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, refused to budge and have insisted they will provide no funding for wall construction. On Tuesday evening, President Trump, for the first time in his presidency, played a president's strongest card, the primetime Oval Office address from behind the Resolute desk and brought to bear on the problem the full weight and majesty of the presidency. In a cogent nine-minute speech, President Trump made a cogent and compelling case for funding a border wall. Pelosi and Schumer asked for and were granted broadcast airtime to respond. They shouldn't have asked. Their response was poorly staged. They were standing shoulder to shoulder at a single podium. The optics were terrible and social media lampooned them mercilessly. Their message was even worse. Where Trump had spoken of large things, a humanitarian crisis and a national security crisis, Pelosi and Schumer confined themselves to speaking of small things, missing paychecks for government workers. It was an uneven fight even before it started, and it ended just as unevenly. On Wednesday, the president hosted Pelosi and Schumer at the White House. The meeting ended abruptly when Trump asked Pelosi if she would compromise on wall funding after he signed a bill reopening the shuttered portions of the government, and she said no, she would not. On Thursday, the president followed up by visiting McAllen, Texas, and doing a roundtable there with law enforcement officials. CNN's Jim Acosta unwittingly made the case for wall construction when he posted a tweet of himself standing at the border next to a bollard wall looking through to the other side and saying there didn't appear to be any sign of what he called the national emergency that the president has been talking about. Commentators on social media pounced. One tweeted in response, so where there are steel slats, there isn't an emergency crisis. Got it. Though later in the week, the president seemed to be settling on a strategy of declaring a national emergency along the border so he could bypass Congress and direct the military to build a wall, by week's end, he appeared to have backed off that idea. We're now in week four of this partial shutdown, and anyone who tells you they know how this will end is lying. Stay tuned. Finally, on the staffing front, the Senate Judiciary Committee, now under the chairmanship of Lindsey Graham, has scheduled a hearing on the nomination of William Barr to be Attorney General of the United States on Tuesday, January 15, and Wednesday, January 16. One other note on the staffing front. Last week, the Washington Post published a hit piece attacking Russ Vaught, the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. Russ is a conservative movement stalwart, a longtime conservative who's been fighting the good fight for years in the swamp. And because he's now the acting director of OMB, the swamp has decided to take its shots at him. So the Post published this hit piece that reminded everyone of the run-in he had during his confirmation hearings with Bernie Sanders, who challenged Russ over the tenets of Russ's, of, of Russ's Christian faith. And then the Post wrongly said Russ's confirmation was dragged out because of his Christian faith. In fact, Sanders' opposition had nothing to do with the delay in Russ's confirmation. His confirmation was delayed for a totally unrelated reason. Senator John Cornyn of Texas placed a hold on his confirmation as a means of prying more hurricane relief funding out of the Trump administration. Will this hit piece hurt Russ over the long term? Doubtful. But I wanted to bring it to your attention as an example of what I think we're likely to see a lot more of in the coming weeks. 
And that's our Washington Report for this week.